Coldplay and the speed of sound. Welcome back to Amelia's Performance Podcast. Today I'm joined by the one and only Danny Lennon, the man I call the podfather. The reason I call him the podfather is because he was partly responsible for getting me into podcasting. So if you're listening to this tripe, it's because of Danny. Uh, Danny has been very instrumental in guiding me at the initial stages of the podcast, getting it up and going. Types of guests to have on and sort of any of the kind of crappy audio experiences you may have heard or have seen I have had with the podcast. That's all down to Danny. So thanks, Danny. Uh, it could be a lot worse if it wasn't for Danny. Now, behind this, Danny is an expert in the area of uh, dietetics, nutrition. He's got an excellent podcast, way better than this one, called Sigma Nutrition. I would really strongly urge you, if you want to learn more about diet, nutrition, this man puts on a masterclass with this and the experts he has. In addition, you've got an awesome website with lots of free information on it. Just scroll down there to the show notes and click on it and go over there. I cannot recommend this podcast highly enough in the area of um, dietetics, nutrition, especially around performance. So Danny is based in Ireland, uh, another Irishman on the podcast again, but he's internationally known for the work that he does. Um yeah, look, I'm not going to talk about it too much here. Uh, have a listen, see what you think. If you like it, leave a review. Uh, you got any feedback, contact me at ian.dunican at mediasconsulting.com.au. Here is Danny Lennon. Great, let's do it. Go here in five, four, three, two, one. Today I have a very special guest, the one and only, the podfather. Danny Lennon. <laughs> you're uh, being very uh, kind, but you're also maybe misleading people by calling me a special guest. I'm no, very unremarkable. You're, you're, no, you're not. Yeah, I think you were the second, your podcast, Sigma Nutrition, which is an excellent podcast. If anybody's interested in, in nutrition, hang up this podcast now and go over there and listen to Danny's 300 odd episodes or whatever's over there. Because Danny, I think you were the second podcast I ever went on. And then you know, a few people had said to me about actually doing my own podcast and you were actually very instrumental in, in reaching out and helping me when I reached out to you and gave me lots of your time and still answer some of my idiotic questions from time to time about um, sound and editing and music and all sorts of stuff. So, so yeah, so um, this is I'm a good segue. Oh, yeah, it was a good segue that because good the good thing is, Danny, if anybody has problems with the podcast or the audio, they can blame you because they get all my advice from you. <laughs> <laughs> I take no responsibility whatsoever. <laughs> so you may you may hear there, ladies and gentlemen, from uh, Danny's voice um, that Danny is a fellow Irishman, although myself and Danny have never met in Ireland. We've met here in Australia once. We've been on um, communication a number of times for different reasons. Um particularly around sort of sleep and weight cutting and, and things like that. Danny shares interest in the weight cutting arena. A previous guest that Danny and I would know or share would be um, Arthur Lynch, who was just on last week, uh, Reed Real, Israel Halpern. So there's a kind of a network of, uh, I suppose, uh, what would you call us? Um, in the old days, you would have called them yeah. SWATs or nerds, but I suppose we're SWATs <laughs> and nerds that are uh, do combat sports and lift heavy shit. Right. So, so yeah. people don't call you that anymore. <laughs> No, well, yeah, we have that kind of intersection, that that Venn diagram. All all of those people you mentioned kind of sit in that that middle band yeah. of uh, that side of it. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> so Danny, for people who don't know you, could you give a quick overview of uh, sort of who you are and your background and and what you do currently? Sure. So I'd say my name is Danny Lennon. I own a company called Sigma Nutrition, which has the goal of putting out evidence-based information around nutritional science 
And that extends across a number of different domains. Primarily, a lot of our discussions relate to health, but that can also get into areas around performance nutrition. Um, as you noted, a lot of my work previously as a nutrition practitioner was specific to mixed martial arts and boxing and helping athletes make weight and, and just really fuel their nutrition. And so we have a educational component of the business where most of my focus is on creating content. So that's the podcast. I do a fair amount of lecturing and seminars. Uh, we put up written pieces as well. And then we also have a coaching arm to the business where there's a, a number of coaches now that, that work for Sigma, where we work one-on-one -on -one with a variety of, of people. Um, on the athlete side, we work with mainly athletes who are making weight for competition. Mm -hmm. So we work with a lot of power lifters right now. Um, and we've also historically worked with a lot of combat sport athletes, but then we have general nutrition, nutrition coaching clients as well. So uh, before that, academically, my background is an undergrad degree in biology and physics. And then I did a master's degree in nutritional sciences in UCC here in Ireland. And Sigma Nutrition has been running for the past seven years now. And uh, the podcast has probably been the thing that has uh, allowed me to reach the most amount of people. And here we are, I guess. Danny, did I hear a rumor on the grapevine from a, maybe a fellow snitch there in Ireland that you used to be a school teacher after you finished university? Correct. So the, the sequence was I, I did my original degree in biology and physics education. Um, that was my original thought was maybe I'll be a PE teacher. And then that didn't really happen. So I said, well, I'll be a science teacher and I'll just like teach sports or something. So I did my biology and physics education and went for and taught for a year in a secondary school here to leaving cert level, um, which would be like 17, 18 years old for those of you that are not in Ireland and yeah, taught biology, physics, and maths. And during that year, I kind of realized I'm not really sure I want to do this <laughs> as in, I like teaching people stuff, but I'm very averse to conflict and I don't like disciplining people. And I don't like the system necessarily that was in uh, the, the kind of school system and sticking to a specific of syllabus and, and just some of the things that I, I didn't know if I, enjoyed or was cut out for. And so I had a one-year contract to the end of that school year. And so during that time between, I said, well, maybe I'll think about doing something else because now is the only time I will go and try it because I don't have a permanent contract. It would be much more difficult if I'm given mm -hmm. a permanent contract than I'm guaranteed. So uh, yeah, I, I was just really like most of my time outside of, of work was spent reading uh, research papers about nutrition uh, because I was just interested in it for myself and for my own athletic performance. And so I decided to go and pursue that without really an idea of what would come off the back of it. Mm. And then I went and did my master's and yeah, a random series of events leads us to where we are now. It's funny as a side note, you know, for people who listen to podcasts or other people, it's a common theme across the board and even people I've had on here, if you start doing something you love and you really enjoy it, the money will come after, you know? So People go, I don't really know why I did that or why I followed that path. And I was the same mm. as well. I, I said to people, it's not like I was 15 years of age smoking cigarettes in the schoolyard trying to be cool and thinking someday I'm going to be a sleep scientist. Like it, just <laughs> right, wasn't, yeah. it wasn't the way it was happening, you know, it was quite yeah. the opposite. I was like, I'm going to here, I'm going to join the army. I'm going to be tough. I'm going to be this. I'm going to be that, whatever. It was never like, oh, I'm going to be a PhD in sleep and chronobiology mm. and publish papers. And like that mm. was so far from it. But yeah, you know, it just and I, a series I think, of events that you follow. Yeah, 
Yeah, and it's interesting you say that. I think people sometimes um, can scare themselves uh, and it, it's easy to see why that there's this kind of societal expectation of this is the way it works, right? People that you look at and are successful always knew what path they were going to follow and they like this is the 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 path they went down. Whereas most of the time you see it's some sort of weird zigzag. And yeah. um, I, I love, uh, I don't know if you've read David Epstein's book, Range. Danny, Danny, um, stop right there. Stop, watch this, watch this, no joke. So, anybody listening, I'm just picking up the book. It's in my office. <laughs> I'm just picking up <laughs> the book, Range, and I'm right in the middle of it at the moment. My wife bought it for my birthday a few weeks ago, and I'm just wow. halfway in the middle of it. And I was actually, as you were talking, I was going to talk about the book, Range. So I'm just showing Danny the book, Range, here. How weird wow, is that? That's amazing. <laughs> Like, yeah, because just as you'd said that, like th th there were so many reminders in that, and he cites so much good literature to, to that same effect that um, all these kind of routes that we take that seem disconnected or people worry are a waste of time are actually the opposite. They actually make you better. And I, I would say definitely knowing some of your background and what you've ended up doing, there's no doubt being a tremendous advantage to you and what you've ended up doing through that kind of diverse range of experiences and background that you've had rather if you had decided okay i'm going to go and at 18 study uh, an undergrad in general science and i'm going to get into sleep research and just stay in yeah, that yeah. academic silo forever it's a very different perspective to what you would have came up with otherwise so yeah yeah I loved uh, Epstein's work because of of that, and it confirms that. Yeah, I can just stay doing random stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's what, I, that's what I'm getting over already. You know, maybe I'll go and do something else after this. You know, so like, because my my new bent the last few years is actually philosophy and religion, um, particularly sort of Taoism, um, Stoicism, and Buddhism, and I've kind of been mm -hmm. flirting with stuff like that. And that's the next kind of thing I probably would like to do, or I'd like to marry, sort of the research and that component um, around sort of sleep performance philosophy maybe meditation mindfulness mm. but maybe even now actually i'm thinking you know but i've been reading some stuff and listening to some stuff more about maybe not so much in meditation but how you live your life like a set of values and around how, mm. that, how would that improve things as opposed to going like what oh, you need to meditate 20 minutes every day and we need to change we need to measure the, the change in the delta frequency and of your brain and all that because that's really difficult to do so i'm just wondering about more like we we'll say like what jordan peterson does about people who make you know plans for the future so if people live their way to a set of principles maybe like that are derived from taoism or stoicism does that make them improve Anyway, yeah, it's, it, you, you said it's, to me, Danny, I was you were going to go on tangents. Look at me already. <laughs> <laughs> well, I could bring it down another tangent there, but we better uh, stop it if you want to talk about any nutrition stuff. But I'm happy to talk about uh, <laughs> philosophy for sure. So, because I know you on your podcast, Danny, you do actually in Sigma Nutrition, you do diversify and talk about ethics, philosophy. You know, like the ethics of veganism was something you had recently. What's mm. the most ethical meat to eat on the planet? You know, if you're going to choose me, which one to choose? Like you have guests mm. on speaking about this. So you do yourself get into all those kind of interconnectedness aspects of yeah. and diet into into our daily living as well. Yeah. And, and most is probably a selfish thing because I'm interested in, in those types of ideas. But it's also that given that if people have listened to 300 plus episodes of the podcast, there's likely a significant proportion of that audience that maybe have similar interests to me just by nature. Otherwise they wouldn't have 
continued yeah. listening probably. And so, yeah, I like those different ideas. And even when we talk about nutrition science, one of the my favorite areas that we've been exploring over the past year or two has been more of these meta conversations around science about understanding like what is good science like how does how do we understand like what does causality mean what even is a meta-analysis or how do these things play a bigger role in our understanding and just like a general thread of epistemology i think uh which we can apply across the board so um yeah just my maybe my interest is too fleeting and it wouldn't be what the business people tell me may have a, a specific small little niche to focus on, but it's, it's actually ended up being quite useful, I think. Yeah, I totally, I totally agree. I think there's also a part as well where it mightn't be like this classic, you know, strategic design from a marketing perspective with people at MBAs, but, you know, as humans, we get attracted to people who are good at doing stuff you know, like people who get kind of enamored by actors or fighters or athletes, it's the same, even in the scientific field, you know, it yourself as well. It mightn't be the same numbers, but 40 or 50 people get enamored with a scientist and the work that they do and the approach that they have or with a podcast mm -hmm. or whatever, like, you know, and it's not so much about, you know, each thing you do. It's about the kind of, I think the, you know, a bit like Rogan, it's not, it's not so much that I think people love Joe Rogan per se. Um, obviously some people mm -hmm. probably do, but it's actually that he's providing a platform to explore all these things and he's so diverse, yes. in that, you know, and talking to different people and different perspectives. And obviously he had some fame when he started off nowhere near the fame he has now. So it's not like he had a mm. massive platform and drew upon that where he had, you know, like he was an Oprah Winfrey and decided to bring his, bring his show to a podcast. He's developed that through, through that same path and people get mm. attracted to that. So I think there is something in that, you know, and people are probably saying mm. from a business perspective, yeah, getting on a podcast, smoking weed, talking about psychedelics and getting off your fucking head and talking stuff is probably not the way to go. And right. you can have ads every 10 minutes and that's how you make money. Yeah. But he just went, no, yeah. I'm doing this. I enjoy it. So I think there's something in that as well. Yeah, there is. I think it's um, people focus too much on what is the what is the um, topic of maybe a, a certain conversation or a topic of the podcast. But as you say, probably the thing that attracts people and keeps them around is not the specific topic at any one time per se, but how those people go about that conversation and they're attracted to certain types of mm. conversation that someone will read like one podcast, someone will prefer another one, but it'll be down to what types of conversations they're hearing, even if the topic is the same thing. Right. So yeah. I think, yeah, yeah. It just appeals to different people, I guess. And you, you brought up an interesting point there a minute ago, which is actually a precursor to what we're going to discuss today around sort of um, scientific knowledge. And it's something I've spoken about a lot this year, whether it be with wearable devices around sleep, performance, activity, um, you know, food, food apps that capture, take pictures and kind of help you keep you accountable and measure calories, whatever it might be, all the way through to coronavirus testing that's happening in, in the last sort of year or so as well, where people don't really understand the scientific method they don't understand, like you said, meta-analysis, systematic analysis, that kind of hierarchy of evidence, how we go from, you know, on one end of the scale, really poor scientific evidence is like, you know, a men's health article would say, not to pick on men's health, but, mm. you know, like a, an article is written by, by someone like that or a blog, all the way through to observational studies, interventions, randomized control trials, double-blind control, um, double-blind placebos, controlled uh, trials, all the way through to systematic reviews, meta-analysis and so on. We're missing that. We're also missing like what is the gold standard in each domain and um, like how, what's the best way to assess things scientifically. And then we're also missing like things like the accuracy and the sensitivity and the specificity. People don't understand that. Like 
I was just saying to my wife yesterday that, you know, some people don't understand the idea of a false positive test. They're like, no, it's a test. And it was, it said it was positive. Yeah, but it could be wrong. Yeah, but the mm. test said it's right. And it's like, yeah, but there's false positives. Like there's the sense, the accuracy and then the sensitivity and specificity or, and people just look at you. This is people like that are educated, you know, master's level. Mm. Just look at you with their eyes crossed. Going, what are you talking about? If it's a mm. test and a test said it gets it right. Like it's, so mm. this kind of links back into your job as a probably, or be a brief as a teacher. Do you think we're missing something there in schools? We're missing something in society? And mm. if so, how do you think we could maybe address that? So on the second part about solutions, I'm not sure I'll be able to offer many because I'm one of the more pessimistic people uh, in relation to where we are with society right now. I think we for sure have a issue that specifically shown itself probably most prominently over the last five years within society of how we are just incapable in general of having not only reasoned discourse, but even agreeing on a starting point to have certain yeah. conversations or debates um like what is true or how do we agree upon something that's verifiable information and if we have different people with a different definition of what constitutes evidence or truth or we have certain people who don't believe, for example, that science can show us something that's uh, objectively true or that we, or if they don't respond to logic and reason, then it's hard to have any of these product, this productive discourse. Um, how this has came about has probably been a whole host of things, but probably where, why it's accelerated over the last few years seems this kind of intersection that people have talked about between social media and this hyper connectivity we have, but just the ease of which people can put out disinformation. Mm. And we're now in a situation because of um, online communities where people can remain within certain echo chambers and hear the same type of ideas perpetuated over and over again, that then the more they get repeated are going to seem true. And even and there, and there's no way for them to be able to pull back and see hang on is this actually accurate like if you're in a certain online forum and a certain conspiracy theory is getting repeated by all these people who they're confirming yeah that this is definitely true then you're going to be one of the people that believes that and then all these people you meet in public are the idiots that don't know this special information so there's these echo chambers that emerge and part of that is obviously driven by social media algorithms which i think uh, there's been a lot of attention placed on recently where if, if you have a Facebook feed or an Instagram feed, what you see is going to be different to someone else. And it's just going to curate information based on what you're going to click on. And so this kind of gets us further away from a shared truth, I suppose. So um, for that reason, I'm quite kind of pessimistic at times about how at a large scale we can have uh, not only reason discourse, but a source of information that people can trust in because there's never been less trust, I suppose, in like big institutions and, and places where people can see information. Mm -hmm. And um, I think you're seeing that now manifest in the problems we're probably going to see with how many people adopt um, or how many people are hesitant to get a, a COVID vaccine as an example, or even beyond that, um, how 
many people are just resistant to any public health measures because they think the whole thing is a hoax, right? Like that is very disconcerting when we have a significant number of people that are of that uh, belief. Um, in terms of how to get through to those people, um, and I recently had a conversation on my podcast uh, with um, David Robert Grimes, who actually has published some research looking at conspiracy theories and why they manifest. And it, it's it's identifying that there's probably a certain number of people that once they're that deep into the rabbit hole, um, there's, there's no way to pull back from it. Uh, so it's trying to... Pr- as a preventative measure, get to people before they get too far ingrained in, in those ideas. Um, and there's some ability to do that through, which it circles back around to answer your actual original question. There's an ability to do that through initial exposure to people to show them ideas that are out there and ways to vet information so that when they do come across that, they're less likely to be taken in by that. So I think there is an ability for, and I think it's what we we kind of do with platforms like this, where we discuss scientific ideas and how to think scientifically, is that the more you expose people to, here's something that, say, isn't scientific or pseudoscientific or incorrect, and here's why, here's the red flag. So in your example around, say, wearable devices and sleep, you can use that as a starting point and talk that through that with someone. And then they start to say, oh, so when I see people make claims like this, this, and this, or uh, say things like X, Y, and Z, that's not necessarily true. And then they can think back to your example. And so I think they're less likely to be susceptible to that maybe in the future. So that's the only way I can see right now on a on an individual level of being able to teach people like what are potential red flags for misinformation um and then more of a general understanding of what critical thinking is and then hopefully try and get more people to have reasonable uh civil discourse on ideas uh but how to go about that is another thing yeah i get i i've I've been getting concerned probably the last year and a half because in my consultancy work with businesses when i speak to people or engage with groups it's interesting some of the comments and feedback you get because i generally would try to say right if it's an issue that we're looking at in a business i'll say right here's what the scientific evidence says about this and here's the scientific evidence from laboratories here's the scientific evidence from applied research here's the scientific evidence that we have from kind of technical reports right so i look at all those holistically and say I make a kind of a judgment call. So we know it is. It's a bit like when we go for humans, you know, this stuff is done in rats. And then, you know, like Dr. Rhonda Patrick, for example, who's always on Rogan, she's, she cites a lot of studies about mice and rats. So I always kind of like, oh, you know, I kind of use that example sometimes. And I go, that's, yeah, it's interesting and might have some application, but may not necessarily be true for humans, but some interesting stuff there. And we can, we can derive some learnings from it. So I'll generally go through all that information. I'll talk about the scientific research and I'll say, right, now in our experience or in experience in the world, the application of that science coupled with kind of business objectives, this is the best path forward. And now we're engaging with you guys to ensure that we're, you know, getting the science, the experience and the buy-in before we make an action. And then people go back and start fighting the science. And lately I've been kind of picking on that thing about the science. And I asked some questions and it's really interesting, Danny, because people say science is an opinion. So this kind of whole climate change thing has kind of permeated through or public health stuff, as you said. Mm. So I asked some people, like, what do you mean? They get quite aggressive about it, number one. Uh, but also as well, and I may have spoken this on previous episodes, come up a few times now. They actually think, Danny, if you and I were two scientists, that we just sit down and write a paper. 
like that we don't collect there's not they don't understand ethics they don't understand methodologies results analysis and then they'll go yeah well it's easy you just get those people to say what you want i'm like obviously you haven't been on an academic paper because trying to get four or five people to agree on a sentence sometimes in the discussion is just like you know it's torturous you know when you're writing a paper right. for people it can be really difficult to get people's opinions in you know um and i'll say to people yeah you i agree with you to a certain extent a scientific paper can be you know an opinion the introduction can be an opinion because you're just you know it's however you kind of cherry pick the field and and put your introduction and argument forward for the hypothesis name so to a certain degree yeah that is probably your opinion based upon the facts that are out there but we'll leave that aside and we'll give you that one and then i'll say the discussion or the interpretation of the results yeah that's obviously your kind of hypothesis of the application of that in the real world but I won't give you the methods and the results, guys, because that is the core of the scientific method. That is the scientific method, and mm. to, to me anyway. And I'd love to hear other people's thoughts on this, but you can't argue with the methods and the results. Like I actually think that the methods should be written before the experiments even start, and it should be signed off mm. by a by a journal. Like you know, that would be mm. a good way to go. So, but people don't understand that. The, the, yeah, yeah, no, but that's just an opinion. I'm like, and you can keep going around, and it's like you say, you can't get that one step one of like this is the scientific method this is what we're trying to achieve and it's a process of inquiry investigation we don't actually have a narrative that the, the results will inform the discussion you know i spent like yeah. two hours today with one of my phd students where we're looking at ibs and sleep and um and mental health and that's the same conversation i was having with her and she's really good and she's like oh yeah i said like don't try to analyze data too quickly where it all comes in and we'll sit and we'll look at the story will unfold with the data that will help us write the narrative for the paper, as opposed to kind of in your head thinking that you're going to get an outcome mm. and trying to write it around that. So it's step back yes. and the data, you know, and people just yeah. can't seem, a lot of people just don't seem to get that. And I, I go mm. in my head, I'm like, like I'm half a dummy and even I get it. And it's like, what? It's really, to me, it's logical. It's simple. It's easy. I'm not coming out with some bamboozled scientific methodology with like X minus two and, I just, mm. I just don't get why people don't want yeah. to follow it. Uh, yeah, I've, I've thought about this quite a bit and I've, I've actually had some conversations uh, on a similar topic with our mutual friend, uh, Kirano Regan, on this idea of... King, the King uh, of Cork. So, the King of Cork, yeah. The King of Cork. Uh, and um, so, yeah, one of the points he raises that I, I agree with is that maybe some of the confusion centers around the word science and how it's applied in language uh, most of the time as people think of it. So when someone tells you that they don't trust science or science is only opinion or, well, can't you just get science to show X, Y, and Z? What they're really referring to it probably in those cases is, well, has there been examples where a scientist or a group of scientists have got something wrong? Sure. Has a scientific paper been published where the conclusion is inaccurate or later been shown to be incorrect? Sure. Do Are there scientists who commit fraud uh, outright? Sure. Right. Those all are different things from actual science as we've been discussing it, as in the scientific method, which is a, a process to come to truth. Right. So a certain field within science is different. 
the job of being a scientist is a different thing. So sure, an individual paper may come to a different conclusion, but the process of science is a way of dealing with that. Because in order for us to have a consensus on a certain topic, what do we do? We look for independent labs and different researchers to replicate studies. And the overall body of evidence, when we look at all these different studies, will lean in a certain direction to inform that conclusion. So we're not just like picking this one study that this one scientist uh, uh, did that, that people have this idea of. So the process itself doesn't have this inherent human flaw and bias. Sure, individual scientists can have that, but the process itself, the whole idea of the scientific method is to take humans out of it as much as possible, yeah, take yeah. out our emotion and our bias as much as possible. So I think probably a source of confusion is people when they think of, oh, science has been wrong or science has is just the the views of certain people or they can be paid off it's like in an individual case you can maybe make that point but that's not the process of science science corrects for that that's why it's so so brilliant yeah, um exactly. so maybe that's a source of people's confusion i guess yeah and i look i i, I always think about science in terms of advanced advancing advancing science in, in the world a bit like in buddhism if you see the buddha on the road on the road kill him you know because you're just trying to improve and make things better someone asked me a while ago what would you do if people came out and said that some of your papers were all crap and like they, they disproved that i'd be like i think it'd be fucking brilliant and they're like what i said i think it'd be awesome mm. i said i'm not married to the results i'm not i didn't sit down and write those results and then write a paper around that they were the experiments that's what i found I said, to be honest with you, I'd love to disprove everything I've done and mm. find something else. Because the more we find out and the more kind of answers that we have for different things, the more then we can actually get to the root cause of the problem. Because, you know, we have to spend more time defining these issues and more time gathering data. And the more we find out, the more things we can do with it. It's not a case of like, well, we've solved that one. You know, that's right. over. It's not, it's not like yeah. that. That was the case, you know. We'd all think that, you know, that, the planets went in different ways and that we were the center of the universe and all these other theories right. people were put to death for those, you know, and we, yeah. we saw what happened there. And you're right, the scientific method corrected for that because it was constant inquiry over periods of time by many people moving it, advancing it, all little, you know, one pixel at a time, you know, or one little yep. grain at a time. And that's what we're all contributing and trying to do. And I think you're right, Danny. I think individuals, there's always going to be malicious people falsifying data that happens in business that happens in medicine that happens in retail that happens in e e economics you know that happens by government that happens everywhere so mm. you know by design you're going to have an element of arseholes in society no matter where you go mm. it's going to be a certain percentage but you're right the, the method will correct for itself and you know maybe there's a better scientific method maybe we can come up with something better but until now it's a bit like what we find in the paper. This is the truth as it is now, and we need to find out mm. the next truth and the next and the next and the next and move it forward. I think yeah. I think a good scientist or a good a person who follows good scientific principles is always looking to disprove what they found or question what they found. You know? Right. Yeah. I mean, that's it. The, the whole process is built on one of um, disproval as a, as opposed to proving anything. Like any study can't prove something. We're not. We can't get a hundred percent proof of something through doing yeah. an experiment what we're looking for is if we try and disprove a hypothesis then over time if we if we disprove it then we can either modify it or get rid of it and if we don't disprove it then that gives us a bit more confidence that it may be true 
but it doesn't mm. give us hundred percent confidence. And just then more and more and more studies that come through that fail to disprove this thing mean that, okay, now we're really sure that this thing is accurate, but we're not, we don't use a study to prove something. That's not how science works. It, it works on that um, attempt to disprove things as you've outlined. So mm. yeah, that, that's the whole goal. Uh, yeah, yeah. as opposed to being a bad thing, you know? Yeah. So Danny, when we move into your area of expertise, like, and and this kind of falls in the biological sciences, which is really, I, I would describe as being wobbly, you know? You said you you studied biology and physics. Physics is a bit, you know, very kind of nearly like engineering or like, you know, very kind of nearly like a mechanical engineer. There's inputs and outputs and systems, and it's it's a little bit more easier sometimes to quantify, um, you know, than, than biology. Biology, to me, in my mind, I think about physics as a, as a, like I said, like a, like a plant, like there's coal going in and coal coming out after getting washed and it comes out and it's nice and it's easy. Mm. And then I think about biology, like a pinball machine from the seventies, the ball is flying around and there's lots of different things happening for different people when they, when they pull on that, you know, a pinball machine. And in your area, this is probably even worse than sleep when you talk about diet and nutrition. Right. Stanley, can we start with maybe just a couple of different definition definitions? Well, let's start with a speech therapist for me. Can we start with <laughs> definitions about what is actually a diet and what is like nutrition? What's the difference or what are they? Um, so into I mean, as we would often use it, diet just refers to what we consume, right? So as opposed to colloquially, I suppose most people think of a diet as being some degree of dietary restriction that they go in an attempt to lose weight. So I think from a general view, that's one thing that's worth distinguishing uh, that when with, within like nutrition science circles, when we talk about a diet or a dietary pattern, we're just looking at <clears throat> the overall intake that, that someone may has uh, may have as opposed to it necessarily being uh, aimed at losing weight. So that's just more of a colloquial uh, term for diet. Um, I think one of the was I th your, your question related to dietetics versus, say, nutrition. Yeah, that's probably yeah, that, that's yeah. really what I was getting at. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and it's a worthwhile question. In so with dietetics, or in other words, if someone goes on to become a dietitian, that is related to the field of clinical nutrition, um, where someone gets specific training with. And usually they'll, at least for a while, end up working in, say, a hospital setting. They'll work in cases where someone has specific nutritional needs based on a certain disease, disorder, or some sort of other clinical issue. Um, they obviously need specialist training for that. And then there's also a protection around the term dietitian. So no one can just randomly call themselves a dietitian. You have to go through dietetic training. And and with nutrition or a nutritionist, uh, there will be differences here, probably depending on people's jurisdiction, but at least where, where we are, or at least where I am here in Ireland and same as in the UK and probably in a lot of other places, the term nutritionist isn't protected as the way a dietitian is. So basically anyone can call themselves a nutritionist, whether they have a qualification or not. There are some groups that will have some sort of accredited um, register for people who are nutritionists and nutrition professionals, let's say with a degree in nutritional science and so on. But by and large, just the term nutritionist is, is unprotected. And so a nutritionist, whether they have a degree in nutritional science or not, 
um, doesn't have the scope of practice of a dietitian to work with people giving specific dietary advice in the context of clinical disorders. So a dietitian can set out a meal plan, for example, for someone that has uh, cancer or IBS or type 2 diabetes, a specific dietary plan aimed at helping them manage that, that condition. Uh, a nutritionist cannot do that. That is beyond uh, their scope of, of practice. Um, and neither for a lot of the situations probably wouldn't have the, the specialized training to do so. Um, so the, the simplest way probably from an overall sense is dietetics or being a dietitian is typically clinical nutrition, often hospital or clinic based. And whereas nutritionist as a term can be anyone. And it more refers to probably people advising about general nutrition practices, um, in, in different areas. Yeah. Danny, if we kind of scan the landscape from an industry point of view and probably an athletic point of view in industry and generally in the Western world, we're seeing lots of people basically just get bigger, right? You know, not, 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 and not related to like Arnold Schwarzenegger bigger, like where they're going to have, you know, a high BMI, but low body fat. We're just seeing people getting basically just bigger and fatter, right? So BMIs are going up, people are overweight, people are obese. And some of the data we've been collecting in, in research or even from, you know, consultancy wise, it's roughly about 65 to 70% of people are either obese or overweight. If we look at athletes as well, many athletes now that we work with as well, starting to struggle with weight. Um, it's leading to other issues around sleep-related breathing disorders. They're either, they're generally like, you know, struggling to to make weight as combat sport athletes or they've got issues around it. It's a, it's a contributing factor. But it seems to be that there's not many people actually doing anything about it. It seems to be nearly like turning out a blind eye, you know, as if like, you know, you know, your girlfriend's cheating on you, but you don't really want to know it. You're just kind of looking away to the side and no, don't really want to acknowledge it. And if you bring it up in industry, or you bring it up with athletes, Maybe not so much with athletes, but definitely in industry, it's kind of like it's too hard to crack. You know, nobody wants to mm. kind of look at. From a kind of a speculation, Danny, why do you think diet nutrition is is important for for industry and athletes to look at, and probably even more so, I would say now. Why why should they mm. look at it? What what would be the kind of the benefit of tackling um, this conundrum? Yeah, well, well, I think this rise in prevalence of chronic disease risk and obesity that you mentioned is predominantly tied to environmental factors. So our food environment, the typical lifestyles uh, that that we now live, influence of the food industry, um, availability of um, cheap, convenient, calorie-dense, hyperpalatable food that's all around us, uh, typical working schedules, um, the the kind of work environment that that you would have seen that relates to disrupting sleep and so mm -hmm. on and sleep has a connection then with, with diet and all, overall activity and the ability for us to go through a day now with very little physical activity unless we want to and so a combination of all those things kind of sets the stage that we essentially have what what some research would term an obesogenic environment that makes it relatively easy to gradually go down a path where we are gaining weight or living a lifestyle that increases chronic disease risk. And I don't think a lot, I think some of that may be in certain cases, uh, is some degree of, um, personal choice, let's say, but I think most of it is driven by external factors that we are, 
unaware of or people are don't have control over. So I think that would be the first thing I'd say. Then how that relates to your question of why is it important to look at nutrition is because we know that we have this environment around us that if we were to just go about unconsciously living our lives, there's more of a predisposition or a predilection for us to slip into a lifestyle that is characterized by low levels of physical activity and a poor quality diet that is high in overall calories relative to our needs just because of the environment around us. So if that's something that we all could easily slip into, unless we have conscious behaviors to the contrary, it becomes even more important to think about having certain behaviors and actions and habits within our overall lifestyle to combat that. And some of the interesting research actually that's been done in the area of genetic risk for obesity is that when you look at those that have, so they based like on a, a genetic score based on 93 or 95 genes that would increase risk of obesity, and you can assign someone a certain genetic risk score. And based on that, people who have the highest genetic risk for obesity actually will see the biggest response in terms to change in activity levels. And then also you would see the same with diet. So that is comforting in some way in that those with the highest risk uh, genetically, it's not this predetermined thing. In fact, lifestyle in terms of activity and diet is more important for those with that higher risk of obesity than others. So in other words, for every unit of physical activity that person does, they will confer even more of a benefit to their long-term health than a person with a low risk because that person's absolute risk is, is low. So incrementally more uh, physical activity isn't going to have as big of a difference. So knowing all that, that would be the reason why I would say to people, because of this situation, the kind of environments around us and all these things that we don't have control over and are certainly not people's individual fault or, or choice, that makes, in order to prevent some of those downsides, we can take it upon ourselves to make conscious decisions. How do I set up my habits around food? How do I set up my food environment at home? How do I be more conscious of where I'm likely to slip into bad habits? How do I make changes that I can um, implement some of the sleep advice that you may give them? Or how do I make physical activity more of a natural part of my day? Those things are important because otherwise, by turning the blind eye to them, as you say, it's probably likely we will go down this path of um, increasing adiposity, increased chronic disease risk because just of the modern lifestyle environment around us, mm. if that makes sense. No, it definitely does. Yeah. And there's lots of factors there probably that I haven't looked at or considered in a holistic picture about taking all of those kind of environmental factors, working conditions, you know, food industry. I probably haven't thought about them in my mind. I'm kind of putting this kind of arc in front of me going this, this, and this. And I'm, I'm, I presume probably someone's drawn this out really, really good already, but it's, um, it's interesting because the other part I think about Danny as well, and, you know, jump in here and tell me if I'm way off here. What about the psychology of it? Is it, is it, is it people like just choosing not to do it? Like sometimes I just think that some people, I don't know, maybe it's my opinion or my, cause I like staying active. I just think it's maybe a form of laziness or a form of like 
you know, not setting a plan and not working towards it? Is that part of it as well? Have the would they benefit from maybe some goals, action oriented stuff, you know? Would they benefit from being listening to Stoic philosophy or a Jocko or someone mm-hmm. like this about being accountable? Mm-hmm. Is is it are they the kind of things that those people might need then to or how does that um, fit in? Yeah, so there's there's two separate questions there. First on is it down to people just being lazy or that they don't take enough responsibility. I tend to push back against that because no no doubt some people are, let's say, uh, lazier than others, or some people are super motivated and and driven to do so. But I think we have to think about why that might be the case. And you alluded to one of them, that there's, I suppose, a behavioral genetic component that without us being able to really explain why some people and I would say you would be one of them have this just drive or enthusiasm to be physically active and get great enjoyment for doing that from probably the sake of, of doing those things in of itself. Um, I don't think you probably go and do uh, these wild swims or go to jujitsu purely because, Oh, this is good for my heart in the long term, Right. So there's these other <laughs> factors that, that drive someone to want to be physically active. Um, so there's a, there's some of those components that a barrier for some people is they just simply haven't found maybe a form of physical activity that they enjoy enough to keep yeah, doing. Yeah. And now there's ways around that because they probably just haven't explored enough of them. And there's certain interventions that have looked at this of advising people, okay, rather than you thinking the only way for you to get fit in the new year is you have to join a gym and go on a treadmill for half an hour and even though you hate that and you have to try and keep up as long as you can, most people are going to stop. Whereas if people maybe found they took up dance lessons, I was like, oh, I, this is kind of fun, but it's getting that person more physically active. Um, or it could be someone starting a jujitsu class or s- something else. So there's number one, a barrier to why they might not stay being physically active. Two, there's other barriers in terms of time constraints they may have because of work or family commitments. Again, that's where some of the stuff you mentioned around putting a plan in place and being able to lay out where can I fit this in, maybe putting more of a priority on some of these uh, activities. And then there's other external obstacles um, that is a a larger conversation maybe for, for a different time, even related to, say, socioeconomics. So some of these choices that we may take for granted are just not possible for some people where they don't have access to um, being able to get food that we would term as like a a healthy way to eat food, right? Like we've talked recently on the podcast about there's a significant amount of the population in the UK and Ireland. And I would, I would guess the same is true in Australia where people in certain socioeconomic classes don't have a fridge. So if you don't own a fridge, you cannot buy fresh fruit and vegetables because they will spoil, right? Um, some people are in a situation here where they have to choose between heating their home and turning on a cooker in order to because they can't afford to do both. And so, if you're in that situation, you 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 maybe your only cooking equipment is a microwave. So that's going to influence food choices there. So without this getting into a kind of big long preamble about kind of socioeconomics, it's just more about that there are certain barriers as to why certain uh, people may or may not be following certain lifestyles. And I don't think it's an intentional laziness uh, most of the time. However, that said, there's obviously a significant number of people that maybe 
like you said, need something to spark them to place more of a priority on this mm. and be able to either reach out to someone to get help or to be able to try and put a plan in place. Um, but that in itself then becomes uh, uh, another another topic. So um, I don't know if that even answered your question. No, no, or not. it's good. No, There's it's good. And I, and I think you're, it's in, you've hit there on a few interesting points as well because I often hear people going, oh yeah, I'd love to do jiu-jitsu or I'd love to do boxing, but you know, I want to lose 10 kilos first and get fit before I go in. I'm like, that's bullshit. Just go in. Well, I've mm. seen guys 125 kilos start jujitsu. And next minute they're like 85 kilos and they get more enamored with sort of the, the strategy and the, the skill of it and they end up then just like eating better because, you know, they're not feeling like shit or they want to, they yep. just feel, they want to have more energy or after they've exercised, they go, oh, I don't really feel like, I remember one guy was saying, I used to have like Maccas every day, McDonald's for lunch. After jiu-jitsu, I just like uh, get a sandwich, you know? And it wasn't even like he was going crazy, like measuring food or looking at macros and proteins and everything. He was just like, I'm not going to go there. I'm going to have a sandwich. Now, other people might be like, oh, bread is so bad, the paleo diet, whatever. But his choice there, McDonald's versus the sandwich, obviously the sandwich was the healthier choice for him on the way home, as opposed to, you know, so, you know, probably like a six-inch subway or something like that compared to McDonald's is better. So it's mm. interesting like how that can then kickstart people on this journey yeah. You know, to, to get better. And like you said, find something that's fun. I, I said the same thing as well. People said to me, oh, you you must think that everybody has to run 100Ks or swim or do that. I go, no, I don't give a shit what anybody does. But I think you should do something that you enjoy for your physical and mental health. That could be running 5Ks. It could be walking 5Ks. It could be cycling around town. But something mm. that you enjoy doing, because if you don't enjoy it, it's going to be horrible. That's why I said I don't go into powerlifting. I haven't got the frame for it. I don't enjoy it. That's why I don't play mm. soccer. I think it's boring as batshit, you know. So mm. it has to be something you enjoy, right? Exactly. And and there's a lot of those elements, particularly with something like jujitsu or any other place where there's a community around it. Where just think of the likelihood of someone that starts jujitsu and say, like, "Oh, this is kind of fun." Of how much more likely is it that they're going to hang around now, not only because they like doing this activity, but now they're making friends and mm. guys they enjoy uh, rolling with. And then after training, everyone says, oh, we'll go grab some food. And that's probably going to change your food habits now because now you're going and eating whatever other people are eating. And then you start getting interested in that kind of lifestyle, which it becomes, yeah, yeah. as opposed to, oh, I'm just going to run on a treadmill, even though I absolutely hate it. Uh, for for half an hour, um, how likely is it that someone's going to stick with that? And it's not really giving them a lifestyle change as such. Mm. So I think that's kind of part of the bigger picture thinking of when we recommend a change, what is the overall impact on the likelihood someone can adhere to this and and stick doing this? And the same applies then if we were thinking about nutrition, as opposed to thinking the short term. If someone did this today. Does that change their caloric intake? Sure, but are they going to stay doing it is another question. Um, so yeah, I think building those things into someone's lifestyle that can do is probably the the important thing. And that's why some of the advice uh, that some people have of like, look, this is how I did it. So just go and do that. It doesn't work because it doesn't plug into that person's lifestyle. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so it's just going to make it less likely that they're going to to stick to it. Um, yeah, there's nothing so. in it for them. It's like, you know, that's why I said to people, you have to have a with them. And they're like, what's a with them? What's in it for me? Like, you have to define what's in it for you. What do you enjoy? Right. And a lot of people then, like around this time of year, would be buying books. Maybe got books for Christmas. You know, people get evangelical about diets. 
you know, sometimes it's, I think like people should be knocking on doors telling people about diets these days because they're like, the right. diet works, the blood diet works. You know, if people just drank this type of milk, if people just got rid of bread, if you go low carb and high fat and you do this and you do that, oh, I've had this issue and I've solved it by just, you know, eating jelly beans. Is there one diet, Danny? And if so, can we tell me how much your book is where I can read about it? Unfortunately, there, there isn't, or actually more so the case. Fortunately, there, there's not one uh, diet. Um, that said, it's not this free-for-all that some of these people who write books tell us about that, oh, we don't know anything about nutrition and nutritional science is just full of observational stuff that we don't know anything. And here's the real solution. In fact, we actually know a lot about what constitutes a good diet, but it's not one specific diet everyone must follow. What we know are general trends and general dietary patterns that confer good health. And within that pattern, there's lots of different ways to set up your diet. So there's no one specific way to do it. As an example, what we clearly know as a general rule of thumb for people, a healthy dietary pattern is one that includes plenty of fruits and vegetables, unsurprisingly, has an appropriate amount of dietary fiber. Um, so that is something around uh, 30 to 40 grams, let's say, depending on uh, the person. Uh, typically, diets that tend to limit the amount of saturated fat to below a certain threshold. And we can get into that if you want, but certainly not a very high saturated fat intake. You probably in 10 don't want to have a super high sodium intake relative to someone's needs. And again, that changes if someone's an athlete, for example, um, probably getting an appropriate amount of protein in the diet. And then for um, an ov overall skewing of the diet, having plenty of different um, plant materials because it gives us those fruits, vegetables, high fiber sources, etc. So there's and, and there's there's more that we could get into, but like as a general overview, most healthful dietary patterns that we see all will stick to those similar fundamentals. Now, how you can then consume that diet, there's. A, a whole host of ways that would still fit in within that pattern I just described. For some people, it could be low carb. For some people, it could be high carb. For some people, they could do intermittent fasting. For some people, it could be a, a paleo diet if they wanted or a ketogenic diet or a vegan diet. All those things can still fit those kind of set of fundamental things that I've just listed out that constitute a healthy dietary pattern. So it's more about thinking about what are those principles of good nutrition we're after and then what makes it most likely that I can stick to those? So what type of dietary setup suits me the best to allow me to do that? And that's where some of the specific um, nuanced things come in on an individual level that for one person, they may like skipping their first meal and not eating till say midday. For someone else, that would be disastrous and they should do the opposite. So there's lots of different ways to set up an individual's diet, but in a broad sense, there's no one diet that everyone needs to follow for good health, but there are general fundamental, not necessarily rules, but, but patterns of diet over the long term that confer better health. So no one diet. Unfortunately not. Thank you, Danny, for being a guest. You give us no information today. Our <laughs> listeners have walked away with absolutely nothing. They've listened to 55 minutes of guff and not come away with the answer. Well, that's unfortunately what I do. <laughs> I, I disappoint everyone in life. So it's my speciality. <laughs>
<laughs> yes, plus or plus or minus one standard deviation using the scientific <laughs> method there. Um, so that's really interesting, Danny. So how then would somebody go about trying to find out what the best diet is for them? Is it just complete trial and error with these principles? Or is there a test they can do? Or is there somebody they can see or some online system that can find out what's the best diet for them? There's definitely sources that they can look at online. I mean, even looking at um, as much as people complain about them, like the general dietary guidelines that each government put out actually are really solid. And this idea that the dietary guidelines are what are causing problems is just farcical, really. It's the fact that people haven't been able to consume diets that are similar to those. The issue is obviously translating that into what food-based terms. So let's say we see a guideline of it's probably a good idea to limit your saturated fat to less than 10% of your calories. That means virtually nothing to most people. And even for me, that's kind of inactionable. I don't go around thinking about how much saturated fat is in my diet relative to the number of calories I'm consuming. We think in food-based terms. So it's getting kind of familiar with what do healthy meals look like and how can I make more of my meals look like that general structure. So what I would probably advise people to start with is take a look at what is their habitual diet currently like now and where is that lowest hanging fruit of what they might want to, to change. And typically people can see some things where they're, they likely could improve on, right? If, if your diet is completely from hyperpalatable processed foods all the time and every eating, evening your your dinner is just a bucket of fried chicken, you know that that's probably something you might want to change. So how do we try and find meals that do include some vegetables and some lean protein and, and some uh, whole grain sources as opposed to refined grain sources, et cetera, some of those uh, outlines that I've mentioned? And how do you construct meals that kind of taste good based on that? And just gradually over time, make more and more of those part of your habitual diet. So it's not about overhauling and completely adopting this one new diet and not consuming any of the meals you usually enjoy. It's about how do we gradually make some of those beneficial changes of including a bit more vegetables in the diet, in increasing the amount of high fiber uh, meals that we have, making sure we have a serving of protein on, on the plate at each of our main meals. And beyond that, for people just starting out, they might say, well, well, I don't even know what a serving of protein is. Well, that's a good place to start. How can we look up, okay, what are some good sources of protein? Get familiar with what a serving size uh, typically constitutes, whether that's a piece of chicken or three eggs or some Greek yogurt or 200 grams of tofu or, or whatever it is. Get familiar with those. And then you can start to say, think, okay, for each of my main meals, do I have one of these things on my plate? So there's, um, I would say for someone that really is just feeling completely overwhelmed with, with some of that stuff, then it might be worthwhile working with a professional on that to kind of get some structure to what they're doing, but also to get some of that educational insight, or they could just start looking around some of the, um, typical advice they'd see in some of the dietary guidelines. I think that's a good place to start, uh, particularly because there's off it uses relatively simplified languages, uh, language, and there is those kind of same common dietary pattern uh, themes that we're looking at and just see where can I make some of these additions. Uh, so they would be a couple of places, I, I guess, to start. Excellent. 
Well, Danny, we've come to the end of our time. We spent probably half the time talking about scientific methodology, which is okay. So I think we might have to have a part two to this conversation. One of the reasons we'll have to call it short is because it's uh, nearly quarter past six, nearly time for my dinner uh, here, in, here in Perth. Uh, Danny's just had his breakfast in Ireland. Um, Danny, if people want to get a hold of you, want to follow you, get your information, where should they go? Because you have lots of good stuff and I want to make sure people go over there and have a look. Uh, probably the best place is just the website, sigmanutrition.com. So S-I-G-M-A nutrition.com. Uh, there they can find the podcast. They can find a series of Sigma statements, as we call them, are essentially our position stand um, written pieces on certain topics that are often confusing or conflicting within area of nutritional science. Uh, they're all available for free there. And then if people are on social media, they can find me on Instagram, Danny Lennon underscore Sigma, or I'm on Twitter, uh, Nutrition Danny is my handle there. Um, any of those places, I'm happy to take questions or positive feedback, and then any negative feedback they can send to you. There you are. And he's like a true Irish man there, isn't he? Blaming somebody else. There you go. That's why I left Ireland, Daddy. Getting blamed for everything. And there you go. You jump on the phone and you know, jump on the internet, as the, the interwebs, as yeah. the ad would say. And there you go. You're getting it again. That's terrible. There you go. You, you can run away, but you can't uh, get away from us completely. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a guy said the other day he says we're only having the crack and I could see a few people's eyes light up I was like whoa whoa hold on <laughs> crack is an Irish term for having fun oh I thought you were talking about like you were on crack cocaine I was like no 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 it's terrifying well, part of the fun yeah it's terrifying what's happening yeah we yeah. call that Charlie <laughs> um, <laughs> who's Charlie where's he gone <laughs> uh, so yeah you just gotta be you gotta be careful around those things that was uh, that was yeah. quite that was quite weird a few weeks ago yeah, thanks very much for your time um, I, look I cannot recommend Danny's podcast and his work um, highly enough please if you're interested in the subject go over and say uh, um, this is a subject that we Danny and I could spend 12 hours here getting into all these nuanced areas of uh, hundreds of hours over there on Danny's podcast and if you're scrolling through you might hear me on one or two episodes there as well but I highly recommend it Danny once again thanks very much for your time today oh, you're absolutely welcome thank you so much for asking me delighted to chat Yesterday, you were a part of me. I used to stand so tall, I used to be so strong. Your arms around me tied, everything felt so right.